on today's episode, Running for Cardiovascular Health, Part 2. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Not much of an intro here. We're going to cut to the chase and bring you part two of the interview with Brady Homer and bring you a brand new solo episode. I'll leave it a surprise of what the topic actually is. Um, that will come out on Monday. But for now, let's dive in. Steve asks, is there a certain threshold in terms of like minutes per week, for example, of cardiovascular exercise where exceeding it might be counterproductive? And he sort of referenced a longitudinal study that found uh, 7,500 steps per day had a longer lifespan than someone who did 10K a day. Um, so is there a certain threshold? Have we covered that sort of already? What, what What's your thoughts? Yeah, oh, I love this topic. And like I talk with people on, on Twitter about this all the time, like whether is there a benefit where the, you know, or is there a threshold where the benefits of exercise like stop, you know, like how much is too much? So um there's a lot of new data actually kind of recently on this topic. Um, some of it is a bit conflicting. I think for the most part in general, there's a good amount of data that do show that there's sort of like this U-shaped somewhat association between minutes per week of how much moderate intensity or moderate to vigorous intensity aerobic exercise you're getting and something like cardiovascular disease mortality and all-cause mortality. So what this would mean is that say at extremely low levels or extremely high levels of activity, your risk is going to be elevated versus people who fall in the middle of that curve who are doing sort of the moderate or the middle kind of amount of exercise. So who would in theory, I guess, be exercising at like that sweet spot in terms of minutes per day of, of activity. Um, so this would suggest that a moderate and not an extremely low or extremely high level of activity would have the most benefits. And I guess here, so I'll clarify for the most part, um, when I say benefits, I mean benefits for like all-cause or cardiovascular mortality, so risk of getting cardiovascular disease or dying from cardiovascular disease or something like that. Um, so going above, say, that moderate threshold doesn't yield additional benefits, and I'll kind of what, talk about what that threshold might be um, very shortly. But um, I lean more towards sort of a, like this J-shaped association where your risk is going to be high at extremely low levels. So you're extremely sedentary. You're going to have a very high risk of, say, cardiovascular or all-cause mortality. That risk will decrease as you move from low to moderate and then sort of plateau once you get to these more extreme levels. So by that, I'm essentially saying that the extreme levels aren't necessarily causing additional harm, but they're not going to cause additional benefit 
above those more moderate amounts of activity. So they sort of just start to plateau. I think that's a more reasonable scenario. Perhaps if you really, really get to those ends of the extremes, you may begin to see kind of um, some other data. But I think the J kind of shaped association is, is what we're typically going to see. Um, so what's the optimal dose then in, in the studies that do kind of find such a relationship? Or what do I think like that threshold might be? Um, pretty much all of them, I will reiterate, find that compared to non-runners or non-athletes, athletes at any level of activity are pretty much going to have better outcomes than, than the non-runners. So you know that's kind of um, not maybe quite obvious to anybody. You know If you're sedentary, you're, you're going to have a worse outcome for some sort of health metric compared to, to a runner um, or somebody exercising. So exercisers, endurance athletes have the survival advantage there. Um, but I think um, if we talk about the longevity and the health benefits, um, most of the data will show that sort of the the intensities and the duration that provide the most benefits are maybe somewhere around like 20 to 25 miles per week, which which may seem pretty low for people, especially those doing say endurance activity or ultra endurance activity or marathons, um, because above that threshold that there are some uh, some data that show that above that threshold sort of the, the longevity benefits are essentially erased, meaning they don't really have a survival advantage over the more moderate um, intensity runners. Um, so that kind of 20, 25 miles a week, um, some show around like the one to two and a half or two to three hours per week provided sort of the, the maximal benefits. And again, so that's just saying like if you go over that, you're not necessarily, at least as longevity or health span or anything like that is uh, concerned, you're not really going to, to reap a further benefit. So they, um, this is kind of known as, again, that would be like the sweet spot sort of to reap, to reap those benefits. Um, and so I think, though, that that is, again, from a longevity or a mortality perspective. And I think that I myself would, would agree with that. You know, you don't really have to do a lot if you just want to really robustly increase your, your cardiovascular health and your fitness to promote a longer and a better quality of life. But I do think that the threshold that exists for, say, parameters like VO2 max or perhaps even some of these aspects of cardiovascular function, the threshold for that are going to be much greater in terms of how much activity you can do. And I do think that there are um, studies that will show that as well. Um, mitochondrial benefits, things like that. Um, I think that the threshold so is going to be somewhere, you know, greater than you know the two to three hours a week I think even pushing you know four or five six plus hours a week you can continue to see benefits at those levels of activity yes you might not say improve your your longevity or whatever but you're definitely still going to see those benefits for mitochondria for muscle health for cardiovascular health and obviously for performance you know I mean to a certain extent if you run more you're going to be a better runner you're going to run faster and things like that you know granted you know if you as long as you're not overtraining and you're you're allowing your your body to recover enough um so that threshold i think for the minutes per week is somewhere around that you know the 20 to 25 maybe miles per week somewhere between one to three maybe even four hours per week of of moderate to vigorous intensity exercise but then if we look at something say like vo2 max where is there sort of a a vo2 max which you know if you get fitter than that the benefits start to, to decrease there I actually don't think that um, a threshold as exists or there is sufficient data to kind of conclude that exists so there was um, there was a study published in 2019 called the, the Cooper Center longitudinal study um, that basically found that extreme exercisers and these high levels of exercisers um, 
people with uh, elite VO2 max scores, so even high, medium, I guess above average, medium, and elite VO2 max scores, they actually had enhanced, or a lower risk rather, of mortality versus the lower tiers and the lower percentiles of VO2 max. So that actually kind of provided some pretty neat evidence that there was sort of no cap to the benefits of increasing your VO2 max on, on longevity, which is kind of interesting then to think about because if there exists a threshold to say mileage per week, but not at a threshold for VO2 max, you know, the, well, how do you increase your VO2 max? Well, typically by exercising more and training harder. So that's kind of, again, a bit of the conflicting data there. We do know that VO2 max does contain some sort of a genetic component. You know, it's obviously highly trainable, but who knows, you know, whether the people with elite VO2 maxes, it's just due to genetics, which I'm sure it, it partially is. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And I think that regarding fitness and some of these other parameters, strength, mitochondrial function, improving those, you know, there may be no limit in terms of the benefits that you can gain. So I would essentially just recommend there, you know, exercising more um, up to a point is probably going to continue to provide benefits. Um, and then again, there was just one more study I think I remember seeing that um, people who engaged in high and extreme levels of exercise regarding the, going back to those kind of cardiovascular harms, this study actually did find that the people who exercised more had elevated coronary like calcium compared to the non-runners or even the moderate exercisers, which would be kind of concerning, but they actually didn't have any greater risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so I know this is kind of putting the back to the cardiovascular um, harms uh, discussion, but that would suggest actually that the calcium, the type of calcium like matters, and so there's kind of a debate on this where like there's uh, stable plaques in the arteries and unstable plaques and that, you know, the exercisers might have more of this calcified plaques in their arteries, but it might be stable, so it might not actually put them at risk. Um, so all that, I guess, is just to say that, again, I think there's some evidence that if you exercise a lot, even extreme or extremely fit, that uh, you may continue to accrue benefits, your risk for, say, cardiovascular disease might not be increased. And so the way that I see it, um, I think that currently there's enough data to show that increasing your aerobic fitness is probably one of the best ways to promote health and keep gaining benefits. And um, that comes typically through, through enhancing exercise. And so I think the thresholds that people may set maybe a little bit too low, but it all depends kind of on what your uh, on what your end goal is. You know, if you're optimizing for lifespan, if you just want to live longer, yeah, maybe exercise cap it at 20 miles per week. If you want to sort of enhance your performance and things like that, then you obviously, um, you know, want to, to kind of go above that. Um, and then I just, you know, want to discuss, the question did mention the walking, and so I will cover, there were kind of two very interesting threshold kind of type studies that were published recently, both on walking. They kind of did these meta-analyses on how many steps is the best to kind of improve your, your health outcomes. And so the one that was actually mentioned in the question, they did find that sort of up to this 7,500, I think it was almost like between 6,000 and 8,000 steps per day. Um, people, at least for people 60 and older, they continue to get benefits for, again, this was all-cause mortality up until 8,000 steps per day. And then in people under 60, I think that benefit was actually up until 10,000 steps per day. So, you know, 10,000 being kind of that, uh, that magical number that we all hear, you're supposed to get your 10K steps per day. Um, so the threshold there would assume, you know, we could assume that's between somewhere 6,000 and 10,000 in that study, where um, above that step count, say 10,000 steps, you didn't really get an additional mortality benefit from, from walking more than that. But then there was actually some um, 
something else published recently too, they actually found that up to 17,000 steps per day actually had a mortality benefit. So 17,000, you know, that's almost that's almost double kind of what the quote unquote recommendation for 10,000 steps is. So um, it is obviously important to point out that walking is a, is a different form of exercise than, you know, high intensity aerobic exercise. And so I think, you know, if people were to, to ask, you know, how much should I walk? It's just like as much as physically possible and as much as your, your schedule will allow because it's kind of an underrated form of, of physical activity. And the 10,000 number in any way, you know, if most of these studies look at 10,000 as this um, kind of magical number, but it's sort of arbitrary in general. And, you know, some people might know like the history behind the 10,000 number, but it was sort of just made up. You know, there's no real, uh, no real science behind it. So that's, that's kind of interesting, but more walking is better. I think in, in terms of the, the low stress that it places on the heart, just to put it in the context of our discussion, um, very kind of low risk activity. <laughs> yeah. You're making my job extremely easy because I'm just like throwing one question at you and I'm just getting bombarded. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow with a whole bunch of information on, on different topics. This is great. Yeah, um, I should maybe allow you some time to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say, like, for most of the listeners, they're just recreational runners who just love running, you know, 5K a couple times a week and um, less like the elite type of performers, which it can be actually encouraging what you're talking about, how if running for just general health, well-being, longevity uh, is your goal, if that's the reason why you run, then those kind of, I guess, kind of modest amounts um, might be re reassuring or encouraging for people to maintain that 20 miles of running per week. Because um, like I say, if that is your goal for longevity, you don't necessarily need to feel the need to push yourself and push yourself and push yourself um, trying to get more and more mileage to, to achieve or enhance those benefits. But like you said, on the performance side of things, it's a, it's a little bit more uh, different in terms of the how you need to push yourself. But then it could just go, if you go year by year, if you have like a, a race once or twice a year and you decide to push yourself a little bit more, but when you're not racing, always just go back to that baseline of that 20 mile per week, just because that's your overall goal, then, you know, that could be a really nice lifestyle. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that, you know, the 20 miles a week is going to be an average and, you know, everybody just has these kind of uh, dips in their, in the, then these like apexes in their, training where they're going to be training more miles one week, less miles one week, and it, you know, averages out to be 20 miles per week. But no, I agree totally with what you mentioned in that it could be comforting for people to see, to see some of this data, because I think that there is a kind of a misconception that if like, you know, if I'm just, if I'm training, I need to be training like Eliud Kipchoge, or I need to be, you know, running these marathon distances. And like, if your goal isn't really to, you know, maybe your goal is to run faster, but if it's really to just have like a better quality of life it's like it really doesn't it doesn't take a lot so you know you don't need to do probably more than you think you need to to do yeah i might have to start putting a time cap on your your answers <laughs> moving forward because i'm very conscious of the time that we've had here and i've got three more patron questions to get through um where are we up to next one we have is alan who asks if you're doing low heart rate training is it harmful to then race at 20 or 30 beats per minute faster? So I guess it comes into the, um, should you be training your heart 
to are you training at a certain heart rate to prepare for a race or is it okay if you always do low intensity and then try and up the intensity when it comes to race time yeah yeah okay i will uh, i'll do my best to to keep this one short so i would say harmful uh no but painful, probably yes. <laughs> so I think that the harmful aspect first. Um, again, we d- we just talked about how the heart is super resilient, and that is, you know, it is fully capable of going up to 200 beats per minute, even if you've trained it or to do so or not. Um, but if so, if by harmful we mean dangerous for the heart, again, probably not because it's kind of meant to handle that load. Um, I think though, again, that when I say painful, it's surely going to be painful and by that, I just mean that you know if you're not used to having your heart rate elevated, say close to your max, which it might get, say during a race or something like that, it's going to be very probably intolerable, and I would say limit your performance in a way because you're gonna maybe start, you know, it in a, essentially like you know freaking out because it is a you know it's a sympathetic response, you know, your heart rate, you're in that fight or fight and flight you know mode, and so exercise, what it's doing really is teaching your body to tolerate that fight and flight response and know that oh it's okay I can be here I can run a 5k with my heart rate elevated this fast and I don't you know this high and I don't need to to kind of freak out so you want to train it not necessarily you're training your heart to beat faster because your maximal heart rate is somewhat kind of you know limited but you just want to teach your body to be able to tolerate running at that heart rate and tolerate you know the the you know call it what it is, the pain that comes with your heart rate being that high for for that prolonged period of time. Um, So I think that practicing, even if you're doing a lot of low heart rate training, at least do, you know, some sprints during the week or maybe some 400, 200 meter intervals to really get your heart rate up there just to know what it feels like to kind of elevate your heart rate. Um, But I would say, is it harmful? No, Um, but it just might be not as fun of a race if you're not used to to elevating your heart rate that high. (laughs) Yeah, good answer. I I think... um... You know, it's the the heart, the training the heart side of things is um, is one side, but then it's just like effort levels. You want to be kind of familiar with that particular intensity, and if you're not, if you if you train at a higher effort level, then like you say, your body will freak out because it's an unfamiliar intensity, and it'll be less enjoyable, less recognized, and then your body will freak out, and then you, you might encounter a fair few problems on performance day. Yeah, I mean, you just think about it like you're like your regular muscles, you know, you're not going to go out and race a 5k without having practiced at least running close to your 5k race pace, right? I mean, you're going to pull a muscle if you do that. So same thing kind of goes with your heart. You've got to teach your body to, to tolerate the the load you're putting on it. Okay. Congratulations with that concise answer. That was great. (laughs) Uh, We've got the fifth one from Terry. So um, regarding marathon training, are there cardiovascular benefits to splitting up a long run into say consecutive runs or consecutive days even. So just as an example, if you have a 20 mile run to do, is it more beneficial cardiovascular wise to split it up into two 10 mile runs? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's something that I've kind of thought about throughout my training career, you know, splitting up splitting up these runs. And so I think there are positives probably and negatives to, to doing that. So I think one of the benefits say cardiovascular wise and for the musculoskeletal system would be recovery. So say you're going to do your 10 mile run in the morning and then do another one in the afternoon. That's going to allow you all day to rest, 
to get some fuel, to rehydrate, to allow your body to recover. And then, like we talked about earlier, allow your heart to, to maybe recover. So you're not gonna put it through maybe as much stress as you might on a 20 mile run where you're going to get that cumulative fatigue, you're gonna put it under stress for a long period of time, um, and things like that. So I think that could be, that could be one of the benefits. And, uh, and then another one of the benefits, um, just speaking maybe from the cardiovascular side of things, you could get either uh, two higher intensity runs so maybe two higher ten intensity 10 mile runs versus what you might be able to accomplish in a 20 mile run. So you could kind of say run both at maybe a higher percent of your heart than you could heart rate that you could do um, be a threshold run for both of those runs. Whereas you might not be able to do a 20 mile threshold just quite yet. Um, or you could do a very low intensity session say during the second run. First run you could do at a very high intensity session to sort of optimize both ends of those kind of cardiovascular adaptations. I think that could kind of be an interesting way to, to play with that and doing like a double in that way. So I definitely think that there could be some benefits to it. Um, some of the downsides though, again, are sort of related to the benefits now. You know, you're gonna get the recovery, you're, but what you're not going to get is that time on feet and that time under stress for your heart that it needs to be able to do if you're going to be running a marathon in the future. So you know, why do you do a 20 mile run all at once? Because your body is gonna to need to run further than that during the marathon and your heart is gonna to need to perform at that high intensity for the whole period of the marathon. So I would say that maybe, you know, a potential strategy could be to do maybe every other week, split up your long run one week, do a 20 miler the next week because you're going to eventually need that time on feet. You can't just keep doing 10 mile run, 10 mile run, 10 mile run. You have to have the 20, 22, 23 mile long run to prepare yourself for the marathon. Um, so there are some downsides to, to splitting that up, which would just be, you know, you're not giving the body the adaptation that it needs to tolerate that, teaching yourself to fuel, teaching yourself to hydrate. Um, but, you know, cardiovascular wise, um, I think, you know, splitting it up, like we said, could be beneficial, um, maybe allowing you to target these different heart rate zones strategically for two different 10 mile runs, but you wanna allow, you know, make your heart work for, for the full 20 miles too, so you wanna give it kind of both types of stimulus. Yeah, that's being very creative in sort of changing that up and changing up the intensities when you do a double. Uh, and I guess when it comes to the, the longer runs, you kind of wanna train a little bit fatigued. You wanna learn to run a little bit fatigued if you're expecting it come race day, um, because it'd just be, way too far and actually set you up a lot for musculoskeletal injuries. If you're fatigued and you've, you, you know, you, you do a fatigued run for 60 minutes and you're not used to running at all fatigued because you split up your long runs and you're just fresh for, for most of the part. So yeah, like I like you said, there's, there's positives and negatives and dangers and probably a good combination of the two might be, um, might be a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, okay. Aiden, we have, uh, Aiden asks, what sort of training would be best for cardiac collateralization? And I had to look that up. Um, I'm not too <laughs> sure if you're familiar with that term, but, um, do you mind explaining what that actually is? And then is there a training that would be best to suit that adaptation? Yeah. Yeah. So collateralization, um, it's typically a physiological response that will occur, in situations, mostly, I guess, uh, disease-type situations. So, for example, people with coronary artery disease will typically get coronary artery collateralization. What collateralization is, is essentially the branching sort of, of of new blood vessels to essentially augment blood flow to areas of the heart where blood flow may be impacted by the coronary artery disease. So in coronary artery disease, you're going to have the narrowing of blood vessels or narrowing of the coronary arteries, so the blood is sort of going to be, um, 
or the heart is going to be starved of, of blood flow to sort certain areas of the heart muscle. So you could get ischemia. And so with collateralization, essentially what's happening, you're kind of branching off or forming these new areas or these new pathways for blood flow to areas of the heart that are um, not receiving blood flow to obviously feed it with you know blood and oxygen. So that's what collateralization is. And I don't think, you know, I'm not totally aware um, this, you know, again, isn't completely my area, but I'm not aware that this would just happen in a normal situation. So a normal healthy individual may not get collateralization in response to, to training. Um, it's going to be more a situation that occurs in, again, someone with like coronary artery disease where that collateralization is necessary. But if there were a training in healthy individuals, that would be the best or perhaps what um, the best type of training is in, in patients with coronary artery disease. I think that's going to be high intensity interval training. Um, so not necessarily the longer duration, low heart rate, steady state stuff, but the high intensity interval training um, because HIT has been at least uh, shown to be more effective for improving things like aerobic fitness, VO2 max, and in some situations even blood vessel function compared to like moderate intensity endurance training. Um, and I think, you know, with HIT as well, since you're going to be exercising at that higher heart rate intensity, um, you're going to increase the oxygen demand of the heart. And so essentially you're going to get a greater requirement or a greater stimulus for that collateralization to occur. So I think that high intensity interval training would definitely be the best type if you were looking specifically for the benefit of collateralization. Um, because there have been studies, you know, just to kind of draw something relevant but you know endothelial function somewhat improves maybe more with high intensity interval training versus moderate intensity continuous training so um you know the endothelial function is correlated with uh coronary artery function and so i think that that could that could probably be you can make a case for that for sure but again i will just stress that i think in situations like coronary artery disease where you're really going to have the need for collateralization that's going to be more relevant versus just say, um, you know, someone who doesn't have any sort of cardiac disease um, where collateralization may not occur to a great extent. You've knocked all these answers out of the park. In my case, <laughs> you seem to have a very in-depth knowledge and understanding um, referring like several studies on each topic. Um, and for someone who has such in-depth knowledge and, um, on a particular topic I haven't necessarily covered on this podcast before. I like to ask if there's any common mistakes or misconceptions you see with runners on this particular topic. Are you seeing someone train a certain way or behave a certain way or have understandings of this topic in a different way that might be a bit confused or there might be some misconceptions surrounding the, the running community? Uh, anything that you've come across that's uh, worth advising for the listeners? Hmm, yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, you know, this may not be totally as, uh, it's relevant, I guess, to the kind of the heart conversation, but maybe more kind of the, the metabolic side of, of training. So something I've kind of really been interested in lately and maybe a, a common misconception and, or maybe a mistake among runners is sort of not training uh, something called like their metabolic flexibility. So kind of when we talk about that, it is that you know you want your body to be able to use a variety of like the fuel sources that it has available so use carbohydrates efficiently use use fats efficiently and i think that a lot of runners sometimes don't think about this aspect of training a lot in terms of designing training sessions to say target fat burning or target this highly like glycolytic activity or using like carbohydrates um so just as you need to obviously fuel for like high intensity sessions and provide your body what it needs to really hit those those fast times and those long runs I think you should also sometimes think about 
uh, say like restricting fuel during some sessions, which will allow your body to develop like this machinery that you need to, to burn fat efficiently. And I think that this can help you in the long run immensely, especially at like these longer distances and can help generally, I think for the most part with like metabolic health. I mean, you did mention how a lot of your listeners are kind of, you know, looking just for overall to, to run for, for their metabolic health and to improve kind of their, their quality of life. I think that if that is kind of the main goal, then really training this metabolic flexibility through things like say, fasted exercise in like the morning so doing a run without having breakfast or something occasionally i think that can help immensely for improving metabolic health there's like a lot of good data on that um so because you know there's this misconception this ties into maybe a misconception among runners that like every time i go out for a run or exercise or whatever i need to you know stuff my face beforehand because i need to be fully fueled for for this run or whatever um and obviously i want to clarify you need proper nutrition to run you need proper nutrition to recover everyone knows that you have to get you know make sure you're eating enough calories during the day but i think that strategic nutrition is kind of like this uh, up and coming area where you know even if you know sometimes you may not eat a full meal before a run you're definitely going to make sure to recover afterwards but during that run you're going to get these specific adaptations because you you know haven't provided your body with any fuel beforehand now your body has its own fuel on board which it will burn your glycogen your body fat stores during the exercise um and obviously personal preference matters some people just like eating before a run but i think that it's something that people can begin to think about in terms of if you want to really improve your health and you know even something like your cardiovascular disease risk factors um uh, risk factors for cardiometabolic disease um, things like you know diabetes and improving mitochondrial health all of that i think there's good evidence to show that like fasted training and things like that can can help improve all of that so i think it's something to think about you know the sports industry sports nutrition industry has kind of led a lot of runners to believe that you know i need to chug a gatorade before every run that's not necessarily the case especially if it's you know you're going out for for a run that's you know 30 minutes or something like that, you're gonna be perfectly fine. And I think you there are immense health benefits to be achieved with at least a few sessions per week, just saying, you know, I'll, I'll do this in the fasted state and you know see how I feel. And I think you'll begin to learn over time um, how kind of resilient your body is. Um, it's definitely something that I've learned in, in the past uh, few years as, as I've kind of tried to hone in my nutrition, maybe focusing more on metabolic health versus kind of just always trying to optimize performance, which requires a different type of, of fueling strategy, which I'm sure kind of most people are aware of. Yeah, great. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of um, fasting episodes that I've done in the past that people can cool. can refer back to if they want to know, like have a deep dive into that. But that's it's good to know that that metabolic flexibility should be like considered for you know performance and longevity as well in general health. You know, we we had a chat before we started recording. You said that um, you're active on Twitter. You've got your website, which I'll link to the show notes. Um, you have your podcast, Science and Chill. You have your Substack as well. Um, I'll include all of those in the show notes. But could you maybe just discuss, um, I guess, what information you provide on each of those platforms for for people if they want to learn more or want to follow more about you? Um, exactly what what yeah what content is detailed in each of those. Absolutely. So Twitter is kind of a combination of a personal slash professional account. I mean, it's probably maybe 30% of just kind of my personal random brain farts that I tweet out every once in a while. Um, some, you know, I'll post a lot of my exercise data on there, my, my Peloton rides, my runs, my workouts in the gym. I always, you know, people seem to enjoy looking on Twitter and, and seeing all of that. So I'll always post kind of all of that on there. Um, and I also just engage in, again, a lot of 
talking about a lot of the topics on the scientific side of about like what we talked about today and then just getting in general conversations I'll post articles on on health longevity on exercise diet nutrition and things like that so I really use it as just a space to to really talk with people who are interested in the same topics and who seem to enjoy talking about the same things that I do um, and I use it as a learning platform as well also as a place to kind of to find articles but um, typically what I'll be posting on there just a lot of stuff on my exercise sometimes my dog um, <laughs> and then uh, mostly you know just just scientific stuff or maybe like an experiment I'm, I'm doing or something so that's kind of where my Twitter is uh, if they go to my website Anything that I do, whether it's writing, publish a podcast, um, I have my scientific kind of publications on there. Everything is sort of my website. That's just sort of like a one-stop shop. Um, there's links where you can, you know, find my Patreon and all kinds of sort of things like that on my website. Um, Science and Chill, you know, it's similar to, to what you're doing here, Brody. Um, I really just I interview people who are in a variety of sort of disciplines, whether it's nutrition or exercise or, you know, doing research in biology. I think I'm up to around 42 episodes now, but just talking with people about the research that they're doing or, or these other health topics. And then Substack is where I do my writing. So it's typically my, my blog. Um, I do typically just two maybe longer form blog posts a week where I'm just writing again about kind of some of the stuff we talked about here today, health, longevity, different studies that I see. Um, but I mainly use it for like my weekly newsletter that I send out. So I've been sending out a newsletter for just over a year. Um, it's called Physiology Friday. And so typically I'll just break down a study uh, that I find interesting during the week, do a quick breakdown, some quick applications, um, like a page long, and I'll send that out every week. And so if people want to subscribe to that, you know, you'll get at least a weekly email of Physiology Friday and typically some other some other posts. I promise I won't, uh, you know, I don't spam, but uh, <laughs> you're always free to free to unsubscribe. But that's been a lot of fun to do um, and send out every week because I think that, you know, there's always some kind of new study coming out that I like. And um, what I have found typically is that if I find something interesting, most other people like typically find that interesting too. So I'm really just writing about what I what I like and other people seem to seem to enjoy that as well. Good work, mate. And like I said, I'll include all those links in the show notes. Um, it has been an extensive journey on cardiovascular health on this episode. So I couldn't think of a better person to have on to talk about this topic. You seem to be very well versed in recent evidence and you're a part of the, the research studies um, as well. And just doing it personally, like you say, you've got like personal accounts of what's helped you and, you know, how the what your research itself is extended into your performance side of things in your your health endeavors. So well done, mate. You, you've answered all these questions. Like I said, you knocked it out of the park. And um, if there's any other cardiovascular topics that arise, um, I'd love to get you back on to discuss. So once again, thanks for taking your time. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but um, thanks for coming on to the podcast. No, this has been this has been so much fun. Uh, all the questions are great. And yeah, if, if people enjoyed this episode and have more questions they want answered, we can we could do a round two sometime. But thanks for having me on, Brody. I, I appreciate it. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.